You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Linsenmeyer. My guest for episode 164 is James McMurtry, a Texas singer-songwriter. He's put out 10 albums since 1989. You're right now listening to his most famous tune, Choctaw Bingo, from 2002's St. Mary of the Woods. Today we're going to be discussing If It Don't Bleed from his new album, The Horses and the Hounds, then How Am I Gonna Find You Now from Complicated Game 2015, and all the way back to Be With Me from It Had to Happen 1997. We'll conclude by listening to another track off the new album, Blackberry Winter. For more, please see jamesmcmurtry.com. For more about this podcast, see nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. This podcast is part of the Partially Examined Life Podcasting Network and is presented by openculture.com. Though I'm hoping that you are subscribed directly to the Nakedly Examined Music Podcast and not merely hearing it in one of those places. If you really like what we're doing and want to support it, you can do so at patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. That will get you not only ad-free versions of all the episodes, but also my episode notes, which are the lyrics, the structures, things I found noteworthy in the arrangements, etc. So I'll have played a little bit of Choctaw Bingo from St. Mary of the Woods 2002. We want to get pretty quickly to the new album, The Horses and the Hounds 2021. The song we picked off that was If It Don't Bleed. Do you want to say a little about getting into this album, where you're at now, as opposed to, say, Choctaw Bingo or the 90s stuff? I'm not much different. Yeah, that song Bleed came because uh, I had a cousin that was kind of strung out on various substances and, and he got clean and I was bitching about something one day. And he said, James, quit bitching. He says, if it doesn't bleed, it doesn't matter. So that was kind of the seed for that. Looking back down the road from a little ways out I never had a fear and I never had a doubt If it had a lick of sense I'd have figured that out pretty fast But I wasn't any smarter than the average kid Somebody might have noticed, but I never did I never saw the future fading right into the past Talking to the wallpaper, wandering the halls I burned a lot of bridges and I dropped a lot of balls It's a wonder I can never go back to any place I've been But I wouldn't get down on my knees on a bed I'm near enough to Jesus as I ever want to get Seeking salvation in part of my general plan Save your prayers for yourself Raise my glass to your health I don't mind if you don't look like me I can share my bread and wine I come from another time And it don't matter all that much If it don't bleed If it don't bleed Now it's all I can do just to get out of bed There's more in the mirror than there is up ahead A smile and a nod like I heard what you said every time So run another rack, pour another shot You don't get it back, so give it all you got While you still got a more or less functional body and mind Save your prayers for yourself Raise my glass to your health Don't bleed If it don't bleed 
answered my calls and opened my mail I paid my taxes and I stayed out of jail You stay in the game when you're too broke to fail That's a fact Talking to the wallpaper, sleeping in the halls Bones get brittle so you better not fall You slow to a crawl and time gets to ball in the jack Run you right off the track Save your prayers for yourself I raise my glass to your health I don't mind if you don't talk like me I can share my bread and wine I come from another time It don't matter all that much If it don't bleed If it don't bleed So pretty straightforward. I don't know. Is there a name for that kind of mid-tempo? It's swing. It's like technically 12-4 or something, but it's it's just... You'd have to ask a producer or okay. a musician about that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm more just thinking how you approach this. I wrote it at the wheel of a rental van, mostly. And I'd write two or three lines and ah. in my head, and then I'd get to the, the motel at three in the afternoon so we can check in and take an hour off before we go to load in. And so that's when I'd make sure I got the lines down on my hard drive. So I wouldn't forget them. But I wasn't really thinking about production at that point. Okay. So even like what the chords are going to be, it's more just melody driven, lyrics driven. And then when you sit down on the guitar, then something fills it in. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. I mean, I can hear a groove in my head, but you know, I don't know what key it's going to come out in until I pick up a guitar and try to sing it. And sometimes I get it right. So is this supposed to be literally a dialogue with your friend or this is just inspired by that? No, songs are just words and music. <laughs> and it, you know, it doesn't have to be literally anything. It just has to somehow be complete, which is not to say it has to make sense. But it's weird. Like, you don't know when a song is complete until you can sing it without cringing. And I'm not even to this day sure what makes that happen. But you got to get rid of the cringe factor. All right. I don't mind if you don't look like me. Like, that is a line that jumps out as, you know, this is what the song is about. So this is some sort of tolerance that kind of happened, but it came from the words. I mean, I was, I was just trying to put words and meter and rhyme together. You know, that's what we do as songwriters. We, we play with words. All right. So you're setting this up that this is going to be a, a resistance to my basic format of trying to choke. I've been telling people what they don't want to hear and steadily losing fans since 1989. So. Yes. No, I, even if it's not like a, a scene that you're painting, a short story that you're stuffing in here, there's usually still some reason why you started with this kind of looking back at the passage of time and what kind of person you are and then turn that into some kind of like open faith, religious playing with Eucharist imagery. Yeah, but it all basically happened because I had to make a record and that song was written in the last tour before we went in to track the record and I didn't have enough songs for a full record. So uh, a lot of times I write out of fear of not having a job. You got to keep the thing going. And even though I'm not living on record sales, we got to have records out so we can keep going down the road. So I'll get to talk to guys like you and, you know, various journalists. And that way people will, if we're coming to town, somebody might write about it and somebody will come to the show. Well, it's definitely a very fun song. I don't know. Can you say a little about you go into the band, 
the live show I just watched some of, which was like 2013, it was just a three-piece. Was this a, a four-piece for this particular recording? Well, yeah, and there's a lot of overdubs, too. So, I mean, like David Grissom played most of the guitar on this. And, you know, this is a Ross Hogarth production. I, I haven't produced my own record since 2008 because I felt like I was repeating myself technique-wise. I needed to go back to producer school. So I, I brought in C.C. Adcock for the last record and then Ross Hogarth for this one. And uh, the way I make records, if, if I'm producing, I, I take a band and I generally use the take where the guitar part worked. <laughs> Then I don't have to overdub my guitar, but, but real producers work differently. <laughs> so, you know, they'll, they'll use click tracks and they tend to build it from a drum part up. Drum part up or like, a, I assume, a click and you just playing through it? Uh, no, we, we tracked with the full band, but, you know, it's all about getting, you know, really solid drum tracks. So then you can, uh, that's your foundation. Yeah. So in this case, do you even remember if you're laying down, everything is a three piece. Were you then replacing your guitar later or you try not to do that? There's almost, there's very little McMurtry guitar on this record. It's nearly all Grissom. I did sing for about 40 hours. So, And it seems nicely free of at least evident pitch correction. Is that, do you even know? Well, I, I probably sang so much that he could comp it without having to. <laughs> I'm betting he did some tuning in there. Yeah, that has been a bane of my current... Uh, it's a fine tool, but like, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear that it is happening. Well, yeah, you got to be good to hide that. Yeah, I can't say what he did, and <laughs> I'm not going to ask him. Let me pick out a spot here. There's a weird drum fill sort of in the middle of the second verses. So run another rack, pour another shot. You don't get it back, so give it all you got. Why well, you still got a more or less functional body. He's kind of playing like a full measure, like he's going to... The exciting part, but it's just like the middle of a... That's just to break it up. You don't you don't want things to be too symmetrical every time. Well, yeah. So And then when he actually is doing a fill to the chorus, it's just like a very simple, like, launch it in, as opposed to, like, we're using this big wind-up through the whole thing to just, like, blast to another energy level or something. That was tracked in 2019, so I don't remember all the psychology behind all the fills. What is your communication like with the band in terms of, you know, add a fill here? Or are you just trying to leave them to their own devices as much as humanly possible? That was Ross's deal. You know, he's a producer on this one. All right. So it's really that different if you are consciously. If I'm producing, I just kind of let them do what they do. And then I pick a take that I like because I don't speak drum that well. You know, Any sort of further thought on is there a message about religion in here somewhere? What is your... Well, it probably is. I mean, I'm an atheist, but I didn't start out to write an atheist song. I just I had a couple of lines and a melody, and I followed it because I needed a song, and it seemed cool enough that I could finish it. I mean, a lot of my attitudes will come out of my songs without really trying because they're just there. Sorry, you're in Austin, is that right? I'm in Lockhart, which is 30 miles south of the Austin airport. Okay. I lived in Austin for a greater part of the 90s. Oh, so you know Lockhart, you... And it seems like there's the sort of keep Austin weird thing means that you can do country tropes. You can do, you know, the bad grammar <laughs> that you're supposed to do in country songs while you still got a more or less functional body in mind. You can put in. Well, yeah, I mean, country vernacular is really good for songwriting. It rolls off the tongue. And then one of the things you learn the more you write songs is you want to write words that you can sing. It's not spoken word. It's not poetry. It has to be sung, so you want to write words that are easy to sing, and, you know, ain't is a really great word for that. Well, and also, like, just raise my glass to your health, like, doing, doing things that, like, have putting a toast in a song. <laughs> just something that 
suggests something that works for that that sort of uh, the ort. <laughs> It sounds very pretentious, but the the oratorical situation of of being in a bar, it seems like that's what you've been adjusting to. (laughs) I guess let's get the second song out there. How am I going to find you now from Complicated Game 2015? So you said this was another one where you had an external producer. And and I picked this because it sort of had, even though it's like a very, I don't want to say down home country, but it has banjo. It's a vamp in a minor key. So there's something very traditional about it, but it has like all this wacky percussion and stuff like that. Well, that's pretty wacky banjo. I mean, that's Danny Barnes playing that banjo, and, and he's insane. Actually, I think there's, I think maybe Dirk Powell is on that track, too. We, we had several banjo players on that record. I mean, that song came out with a pretty modern feel. It, you know, CC likes his drum loops and kind of rap sound and stuff, so that's how it got in there. I got a cup of black coffee so I don't get lazy I got a rattle in the dashboard driving me crazy And if I hit it with a fist it'll quit for a little while Gonna have to stop and take a piss in another mile Headed into town, gonna meet you at the mercantile Take you to the sun and get you grinning like a crocodile Sucking in fumes I leave the hitchhiker standing Cause I hadn't got room Well he looked kinda scary So I didn't like him anyway Could have been a con from the state prison Runaway anyway Probably hadn't showered in a couple days No one but a fool would have given him the time of day Yeah Just listen close I'll tell you Sign and I'm blind and I'm seeing red, you know. 
So this is still, unlike the uh, third song that we're going to hit in a bit later, which is about seven minutes long, this is still pretty controlled, you know, a four-minute pop song. Live, does this go longer? Or how does this even work live if you don't have the banjo player? Uh, it worked fine as a cowpunk song. We, we, we used to do it as a three-piece. Same tempo, same length about? No, it was, a little, it was a little faster, a little bit different groove. And then I think after the record came out, we started messing with it and like slowing it down and making it a little more like the record. Because yeah, CC got away from our original arrangement. So you say he was into the the rapping thing, but you know you wrote this. So is this like the closest to a rap that you get here in this tune? Uh, no, if, uh, there's a song called Fort Walton Wake Up Call on the new record that's pretty rappish. Rap's in the air. It's going to get into everybody's work if they're listening. Well, and if, I guess if you got a lot of lyrics, like you could really shove a lot of ideas in there if you want. Yeah, we could. Let me play the little a little bit uh, in the middle of the chorus here. The end of the chorus that you've got, you know, you've been keeping it some sort of blues kind of progression, but then we throw to get out of the chorus, you throw in a new chord finally, like that really, I don't know, makes it sound more modern. Or this, I always keep it real. I didn't do that to make it sound more modern. Yeah, just to keep it real. Um, no, that's just where the song goes. <laughs> that's where it always went. Did you have, so is that an actual sitar? That's a PRS through a, a phase shifter. Okay. Well, I hear the phase shifter that the wow, that's like, yeah, there might have been a sitar guitar on there somewhere. I played the PRS. I don't know what else CC might have put on there just in pieces. I can't remember that. I don't think there was a sitar. Like, how did the production style differ? Like, was this still, you're trying to track three of you live, or? Well, that was completely different. No, that was tracked, uh, I'd come in, and we did all the initial tracking in, in Mike Napolitano's house. Yeah, he's married to Ani DeFranco. And they have a studio in their living room with guitars hung all the way around it. And one of Ani's Gibsons sounded better than anything else. So that's what I I tracked on an acoustic Gibson. It was just me and a quick track. And so I lay down a vocal and guitar performance. And then I'd redo the guitar to the click. So I had clean guitar. And then I'd re-sing it. So I had clean scratch vocal. And then I'd go back to Austin and get in the van and go try to make some money somewhere. Meanwhile, CC and Mike would sit there and think, okay, do we want drums on this or what are we going to do with this? That was built out okay, from just a vocal, guitar, and quick track. So, you know, by the time we got the banjos, there was a whole lot of stuff going on, going on that I didn't even know about because I wasn't there for it. Ben Montench played the, all the keys on it, or most of the keys on that record, but I never met him because I, I didn't happen to be in town when, it, when they were doing that session. They did that in New Orleans. So even the, that main banjo part, that's because like they erased your guitar. Yeah, but it was ma- mailed in from uh, Seattle. And so does that mean you had, there was guitar originally over that, but that just you know just took that out just to expose the banjo more? The electric guitar and the banjo are, are overdub, and 
you know, a lot of times we lose the original guitar in amongst everything else we put in because by the time we got done, we didn't need the original guitar anymore. And it's sort of like painting with sound, which is what recording is. <laughs> Any sort of particular influences that you can point to for, you know, writing this kind of, you know, it sounds like a little Dylan Highway Maybe older Dylan tune in terms of just the when rap goes, the rap that is in the air goes into your filter. What happens to it? Do you even know, really? I don't even know because I, I don't. For a long time, I didn't really listen to rap. It was just there. But I mean, that song came about because I was driving to my hunting camp and I had a rattle in the dashboard, and I started with that verse, and that's it's the same thing. I was, and this is another one. Words. Literally, at least you started in the car while driving. So actually, having it be about the car, yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Are there a lot of, even to the point of rejecting them, like tunes about being on the road because like that's where you are? I spent a lot of time driving. Well, I mean, Choctaw Bingo comes from the road. That was, at least for a while there, it seemed like we started every tour or ended it on Highway 69 in Northeast Oklahoma. And it was interesting. At that time, we never played in Oklahoma, but we were always going back and forth across it to get somewhere. And, and there was a lot of weirdness along the road. And there was a bingo parlor in Durant, called Choctaw Bingo, which is now Choctaw Casino. It takes up about 50 acres, and you don't see the word bingo there anymore. But back in the 90s, it was Choctaw Bingo. And then there was a gun shop further up the road called Pop Knife and Gun. And there was a lingerie store in uh, Baxter Springs, Kansas, that had the Rolling Stones lips on their sign out front. I think they moved to Springfield, Missouri, or Joplin somewhere anyway. And I put all that stuff in the song just as an exercise, because I hadn't written in a while. And I just wanted to see if I could get it all in one song. And within about a year of writing the song and putting it out, all that stuff disappeared. You know, the gun shop closed, the lingerie store moved. There's some new weirdness that sprung up along there that fit the meter, like Red River Rehab and Who's My Daddy DNA Testing, which I subsequently put in another verse. So now there's a, there's a lengthened version of Choctaw Bingo that's not on any recording yet, but uh, I think it goes a full, nearly nearly 15 minutes now. So it sounds like, yeah, yeah, no, it sounds like you could... You just could, from stuff I saw through the windshield. You've got the facility to put together a tune, just freaking look around and describe stuff, but has that changed a lot over the years? Is that the way you were writing when you started, or was it like, oh, I've got all these ideas that I need to get out, kind of a uh, young artist kind of thing? When I was younger, I took it a lot more seriously, and that made it more difficult. Because uh-huh. everything had to make sense and had to feel profound and... You know, Don Dixon bounced me out of that. He said, James, if you think you're profound and you think it matters, consider the line, Jeremiah was a bullfrog, and the fact that everybody in the world has heard that line. Hey, it's time for some sponsor talk. I would like to introduce the Nebbia by Moen Quattro Showerhead by Nebbia. Quattro is the most affordable shower yet from Nebbia, the technological innovators in the world of showering, backed by some of the biggest names in Silicon Valley, including Tim Cook and designed by former Tesla, NASA, and Apple engineers. Their breakthrough work have developed a superior shower experience that saves water. The Quattro is Quattro because it has four spray modes, two powerful high-pressure spray modes, in addition to the popular Nebbia Spa Spray. I go for the spa thing. I like the way that it really is misty, and you put your face right in it and get all misty. My daughter, who was visiting from college, also used this, preferred the... Hard spray that gives you the feeling of a high-pressure massage. And when I wash my dog with it, because it has the hose that lets you pull it down off of its uh, magnetic base and wash things that are on the ground, like your feet, 
Well, I use the Super Saver mode. That's ideal for young kids, pets, and sensitive skin. So many choices, you could just switch it every five seconds while you're showering, just to confuse your skin. And you know what else was fun? Uh, Installing this. It was super easy, a three-minute process, easy as changing a light bulb. Anyway, all the modes save 40 to 50% of the water compared to a traditional shower. And while you're shopping at Nebbia, you can also check out their other sustainable bathroom accessories, such as the new quick dry earth mat, which they also sent me one of. It is crazy. You just, you step on it. You don't even have to dry it. It just dries by itself in minutes. I think a ghost is involved. I don't know. Nebbia by Mo and Quattro starts at just $199 exclusively on Nebbia.com. Nebbia gave us a special discount just for our community. Go to Nebbia.com slash N-E-M and use code N-E-M at checkout to get 10% off all Nebbia products. Again, that's Nebbia.com slash N-E-M, N-E-B-I-A dot com slash N-E-M for Naked Leagues and Music to check out what they have to offer and save 10% with that code N-E-M. I would also like to tell you about a thing called Masterclass, which you may have heard of. It is a streaming service. It is something you can access through virtually any digital device. And in your little digital device, they have captured many of the greatest minds on Earth. You can learn about purposeful communication from George Stephanopoulos, poetic thinking from Joy Harjo, science and problem solving from Bill Nye, creating change from Malala, philosophy from Cornell West. And these are just the new classes. I'm not even going to run through the litany of super celebrities that are on here. I do want to focus on one new class from a musician, Yo-Yo Ma, whom, if you are familiar with his work at all, you know he's an amazing performer. Did you know that he's also a super inspirational speaker? I did not. I was just watching his lesson, Expressing Ourselves to Make an Impact, where he's just really talking up the performer attitude of how to really connect with your audience. And that kind of seems the overall tone and lesson of his course. He's got lessons on making your head, heart, and hands work together, adding depth to collaboration, bridging arts and sciences. He performs, he analyzes the performance. So that course is worth your price of admission alone. And it's just one of over a hundred things you will get for you to dip into, for you to share with your family. And each of these courses, well, they have other listeners that you can talk about things with. They have materials you can download to supplement what you're hearing. You can do them as audio, you can do them as video, you can play them at different speeds, really binge on a whole course or just skip around little bits of different ones. It really adapts to what you are prepared to do, however deep you want to go. I highly recommend you check it out. Get unlimited access to every masterclass. And as a nakedly examined music listener, you get 15% off an annual membership. Go to masterclass.com slash N-E-M now. That's masterclass.com slash N-E-M for 15% off Masterclass. Well, that might be a good transition to our third song. So this is not on your oldest stuff. It had to happen 1997. The tune is Be With Me. So you're a few albums in here, but it's still very coherent. It's a pretty compelling story, sort of. But still, like, these are things that happen to you. I don't know. Can you give folks some orientation before they hear it? You know, I have to have people, sometimes after a show, people walk into the dressing room like they owned it. And say, yeah, can I have one of your beers? Like, no, what are you doing here? Well, I just drove 300 miles to your show. Well, that's very nice, but this is kind of a workspace here that you're in. And there's a sense of entitlement from fans, and I've seen that. It's not just my fans. Everybody does that. My dad passed away back in March, and I was up there working on his house, 
trying to sort stuff out for appraisals and I hear voices in the driveway and I look out and there's this couple walking up the driveway. I said, can I help you? Oh, he's just looking. I'm like, what do you mean? Who invited you to just look? You think you just get to walk up, you know, that sort of thing. So I combined that with the history of, of music. We used to need royalty to sponsor us. Jimmy Buffett explained that once. He said, we come from court jesters, not philosophers. So that's where I worked in the court jester and then the medicine show for the next verse, which kind of touches on how we kind of revere artists, but we don't want our kids to be one. We want them to get a, a real job. So it, he's having to ask you, if I'm a good boy, mom, can I go to the medicine show? That sort of thing. Are you who you look like? Or are you just yourself? Are you somebody famous? Just somebody else Can you play Stairway to heaven Are you good enough Were those songs real Or did you make them up I only wanted Shake your hand Equal to equal Man to man What are you drinking? Let me buy you one You owe me much more Than just a job well done You're gonna be with me Till your dying day And I won't take it lightly If you just walk away Fetch me the jester Commanded the king The harder I thrash him The better he'll sing Take him back to the dungeon Getting something to eat If it wasn't for me He'd be out on the street And he's gonna be with me Till his dying day And I would not take it lightly If he were ever astray Yeah, he's gonna be with me Till his dying
Mama, can I go To the tent revival And the medicine show I hear there's a dancer I just gotta see I hear there's a singer Like I wanna be So yeah, this one, you really took your time with it. That we're about seven minutes, kind of a slow, I don't know, it's a, a tango. I, it kind of has that feel. It is It is some tango elements. I mean, Charlie Sexton played bazooki on that. Yeah, you got some cool, so this is one you produce yourself, right? No, it was Lloyd Maines who okay. produced that. <laughs> At least you can hear this, a lot of it is really that three-piece, you know, with some loud shaker. Yeah, it was Chris Searles on drums and Ronnie Johnson on bass, and we were all in the room together. Doing our level best. Yeah, and this really, you put this on some of your live stuff. This really works 
very well. And to, even if it doesn't have like, I don't know, it was something like there was like timpani or something, or maybe it was just some low toms. Yeah. Eventually to timpani. kind of fill things out. Oh, okay. Actual timpani. That was Darren's idea. He, and I guess, yeah, Stuart Sullivan, the studio owner, just happened to have a timpani in there somewhere. And, and then is that accordion? Yeah, Lisa Mednick played accordion on it. Has that. kind of a Velvet Underground sort of feel. I mean, just in terms of it being drawn out and that it has that drone element that comes in and out to just add in subtle ways. Well, you got the actual finger symbols in there, you know, as it goes on to make it sound more exotic. Yeah, it was that kind of like, okay, we've got this long thing out there. How are we going to decorate it? Yeah, that, well, that's a lot of what we do. If you track as a three-piece, then you, know, you usually have to have to embellish it a little bit, but it, it leaves you plenty of space to figure that out. And this one is at least you soloing, right? That it's this sounds like you that you're kind of sliding up and down the neck and yeah, that that weird squawky guitar tone that I was into back then. Yeah, it was like a. I had an old Lab Series L5 like BB King plays, and I think I had a like a blue tube, so they would have at least one tube in the line that ran it through a like a reissue Fender reverb unit, spring reverb. Yeah, it was a strange tone. But so, are the people in the audience who would be kind of violating your space in this way or saying dumb stuff? Like, are those real songs, or did you make them up? Like, it seems like those people would be too clueless to actually hear this as a message to them. But yeah, that line, are those songs real? A friend of mine, Fred Kohler in, in Nashville that I used to co-write with a long time ago, he was playing in, I think, Charleston, South Carolina, probably the Poor House or somewhere like that. And, and after his set, this lady came up to him and says, yeah, are those songs real or did you make them up yourself? <laughs> so yeah, that, that <laughs> verbatim. I had gotten advice when I was in Austin of, you know, maybe this is a universal thing of, Oh, you know, you can't be so just out there with your original stuff because that's such a small market. You got to establish yourself as a cover band and then just leak out the originals in a way that like makes them meld. I don't know. Were you facing similar challenges like that in trying to get your style off the ground? Or Early on, yeah. When I, when I used to do those beer garden gigs around Tucson, later San Antonio, you got hired by a food and beverage manager and you better know some Jimmy Buffett songs, you know, and then you sneak your originals in. You know, when he's not listening. <laughs> so at least hitting, you know, I guess it's a it's a trade-off that you have weird fan parasocial entitlement, whatever, but uh, at least they're listening to you. <laughs> like, <laughs> And they're not all that way. I mean, I've had a lot of, in this last couple of years, doing live streams right here from this table. I have a lot more interaction with fans because they're actually, you know, they're posting on Facebook. That's, you know, and, and some of them are saying stuff like, man, you kind of got me through the pandemic. So that's, kind of made this whole thing real to me where before I'm watching people and you know what I can see through the stage lights and I like it better when they dance because then I know they're having a good time if they're just sitting and listening I can't tell what they're thinking well this way with with the computer they're telling me what they're thinking and it's interesting to see it's oddly kind of a greater connection now and there's no dressing room they can wander into and scarf up my beer either. Well, yeah, I did an interview with some comedians recently where we were sort of talking about how the audience interactions changed with the advent of the internet, that they were kind of voicing that, like, the weird stuff that people say online about you is actually not that different in character than how clueless people would actually walk up to you after the show or whatever and, like, oh, I really liked your stuff, but that, you know, the last two albums suck or whatever, you know, like, why would you say this to me as a human, like... 
go post that on a forum somewhere. I don't. When I was younger, I probably took that personally, but now it's like, yeah, I'm glad you're listening. <laughs> yeah, thanks for buying. You're in record. the room, so you know. there you go. You, you, well, you know, I mean, the Dixie Chicks were laughing all the way to the bank back in the Bush years when all those rednecks were running over their CDs. Somebody had to buy those CDs for them to run over. Is this like old enough to count as one that you were? I mean, you were describing sort of how the three different verses function here, that there are different scenes that you go back to the sort of the king and a jester and then you as a child or somebody as a child. This is more of a coherent story, but do you feel like really this is a fundamentally different way that you were writing at this point? I don't know if it's at that point. I mean, you write mm-hmm. different songs in different ways in any era. Mm-hmm. Um, you follow the song. And the tricky part sometimes is give it its head. If you really try to bear down and get your own point across, a lot of times you're going to force the song into something and you'll have a sermon and nobody wants to hear that. That's why a political song is particularly hard that way. I don't know how Steve Earle does that consistently where he can get his point across and still have a good song. I've only pulled it off a time or two. Usually I toss those things. So do you remember the sequence in terms of this, of like deciding that there wasn't enough for that initial idea of interacting with the fan as creepy and as great uh, the fact that you have at the beginning and the end of the song that you had to have this metaphor of the jester and the king sort of like yes entertainers get treated shittily throughout history or something yeah but there's still some of that court jester stuff going on because you know sometimes we'll do private parties if they pay enough money and, and it's a totally different dynamic than working for a club if you got a contract gig at a club it's a symbiotic relationship. You're trying to sell tickets. The club owner's trying to sell beer and liquor. So you're in business together. But you do a private event. Somebody basically owns you for the night. You're the jester. And we've kind of, we've gotten away from those because they're just too hard. Because, you know, even if the guy really likes you and likes your stuff, you're playing for all of his friends who don't give a rat's ass. <laughs> you know, they're in there passing business cards back and forth, totally ignoring you. Every now and then you get a creepy patron that, you know, it's like wants to impress everybody with what he can buy for the night, which happens to be you. So that's where you get into the court jester. Okay, so I can see how these verses are really sort of about the same litany of complaints, but the decision to make that second one metaphorical and not just like as a dialogue between you and a guy running a party or something like that. True, but I think I got lucky. I think I just happened to read a Jimmy Buffett interview about that time. Ah. And he brought up the point of, you know, he, he believes we come from court jesters, not philosophers. I think we have to be a little bit of both nowadays, because who else is going to philosophize besides us that anybody's going to listen to? Nobody reads anymore. Yeah, insofar as they're paying attention to lyrics, lyrics at all. What's Noam Chomsky going to do? Nobody reads, you know. Yeah, and there's that thing, even with jesters, that like, they're allowed to tell the truth in a way that isn't going to piss people off. Yeah, uh, at least they do it just right. <laughs> at least that's the theory. I mean, there's plenty of media with them getting beheaded and things, but I think that was a, a historical function is that you can have somebody that is allowed to strip the pretense off. Everything. Yeah, satire is supposedly protected in our, in our laws, legal system. When you do this live now, like, does it kind of have a, a similar feel in terms of, how much you drag the end out, or is that like just an ever-changing thing? Like, how much do these just get really set over time? We haven't played that in a band set in a long, long time. I, I, I do it in a solo set sometimes because, you know, with these live streams, I try not to repeat myself too often. So I'll throw in a Be With Me or Deckhand's Daughter every now and then. Is it just because it's old or because it's a little bit of a bummer <laughs> that it's not as party song? No, it's just we got other songs, we, and we have other songs we have to play. 
Yeah, I mean, is that a, a consideration now in the live set of like keeping it reasonably upbeat or something? Or is it just like your reputation as somebody that people are going to listen to the lyrics and like, so you could totally do this and it would be fine with the audience? No, we try to approach our set like any set of music. You have a certain amount of down stuff and then you got to bring it back up and you do a few new songs and you give them an old song that they know to get the energy back of it. It's an exercise in energy, basically. I know, obviously, with the pandemic, has disrupted all the live stuff, but with the reputation that you've gained over the years, has this gotten substantially easier, or do you feel like it's kind of the same grind in terms of the touring, you know, when you're allowed to, as of two years ago, that it was in the 90s, say? We haven't been on the road since before pandemic. I mean, we did a weekend or something, but we haven't done any real tours. We're supposed to go out in mid-January for a month. Though we seem to be experiencing another surge, so I don't really know if that's going to happen. All right. And is there a business reason to like, it's time to make a record? Like, is it? Yeah, well, we made the record before the pandemic. It was a whole different paradigm back then. And we had to get a record out so we could keep touring. Well, then we can't tour. And I discovered after a couple of weeks that, you know what? My back doesn't hurt anymore. (laughs) If I can find a way to do this and stay home, that's kind of appealing. Uh, Can't really do that. You know, we do have a record out. We got to go out and promote it the best we can. You don't want the door to close. We we have to go out to have the option to keep going out. But it's kind of still dicey because, you know, we're acting like this thing, the pandemic's over, and it's not. One of our club regulars came up positive just now, fully vaccinated, mm-hmm. uh, boosted everything. Um, yeah, the Delta thing is real. So I can't predict what's going to happen with this. Is there a vat of songs already written, musing about the pandemic or anything else like that? No, I I usually write when it's time to make a record, and I don't know when that time will be again. Mm -hmm. I mean, has that kind of always been the way it's been? Or did you have like three records worth of stuff already written by the time you did your first album? No, I had barely enough to make my first album. You know, there's one or two songs that I'll write between records just because I feel like writing or because I I happen onto the words, but... uh, Generally, I write incomplete songs at that time, and then when it's time to make a record, I hustle up and finish them all. But you know, that's what happened this time. I, I kept messing around, and Ross finally said, James, look, I can get into Groove Masters on these dates, so I'm going to book it, and you're going to finish the songs. <laughs> I said, okay, <laughs> here we go. And is there like still tweaking of lyrics right up until the moment you sing them? Yeah, and sometimes they should have been kept on tweaking but i won't yeah i won't give you specifics about that it sounds like you added a verse to a tune post recording like is that a typical thing that you keep like the cringe comes back and so you gotta like fix stuff after the fact maybe the cringe didn't come back it's just that i I ran on to other stuff so i put in a verse about red river rehab and the, the the big billboard in missouri with the a little bitty baby wanting to know who's my daddy selling that DNA test, and it all fits the meter. So I had to use it. So that's in the live show. Okay. What about old tunes? Like, do any of those, like, I guess if there's a cringe factor, you just don't play it anymore. Uh, yeah, not- there were there were songs I put on records that I never played live because I realized uh, early on, you know, when I first started out, it was all about AOR emphasis tracks, which was sort of a low-rent single. Mm-hmm. And it was really, you know, most people put out albums with two good songs on them and a bunch of filler. So I put out records with seven good songs on them and a little bit of filler because <laughs> I had to write. I couldn't sing for Sour Apples in those days, so I had to write good. I wouldn't be doing this. Did you start out like as a solo guy or was there a, before that happened, 
Was there a band? I didn't really read your prehistory. No, no. I started out solo, and my idea, I thought I was going to go to Nashville and try to be a staff writer. Okay. Because I knew people that did that. I knew it was possible. But my dad had a screen job working for John Mellencamp, and so I, I gave him a tape hoping that maybe he would cover one of my songs. That way, when I got to Nashville, somebody could rent me an apartment because, you know, the first thing they ask is, what do you do? And if you say, I'm a songwriter in Nashville, they say, yeah, but what do you do? You know, they don't want to hear about your songwriting. They want you, <laughs> they want a steady income. Uh, but uh, John didn't want to cut my songs, but he had some time on his hands, so he elected to produce my first record. Well, that's a nice way that it spins when you end up actually getting acknowledged for your own work. <laughs> well, I had no idea what to do with the record deal, but you know, I, I knew that the door probably wasn't going to open again, so I had to go through it. So uh, to close out here, we're going to introduce the last tune. I had picked Blackberry Winter, just the closer from the, the new album. Well, I saw that it's co-written with Ross Hogarth. Do you feel like now you're at the writing on a Nashville level, Nashville style, or is this still just kind of... No, I gave him credit because he, he rewrote a melody in one place so I could sing it better. All right. Um, and that's that's an actual effect on the song. Sorry, so was he the producer? Is he in the band? I, I, Ross Ross produced the record. I just saw that you had other ones, other co-written songs on this album, a couple, like with David Grissom. Yeah, Gr- Grissom kind of reshaped a the song there. Okay. Um, oh, so that's, you know, since he was playing the guitars anyway, it was still not a matter of like, sitting down with another human being and coming up with something from scratch. It's a matter of somebody's contributed. And so sure, have some publishing. In such a way that it profoundly changes the song. So yeah, the laws are fairly iffy on that, but I, I give them credit when I think they should have it. Yeah, it's definitely up to the how generous the songwriter is feeling. <laughs> in Nashville, if you're in the same room when the song gets written, you get credit. <laughs> I've heard that. All right. So like the, how am I going to find you now? That's not co-written, right? Even though... The production went crazy with it, but like it's still same melody, same lyrics. All right. Well, can you say a little just about to send folks off about Blackberry Winter, about this song in particular, before folks hear it? Uh, no, <laughs> <laughs> don't want to get into that. Okay. Well, here it is. Well, it's the closer. I mean, it's a nice dramatic closer to the album. It seemed like it would be too well for us. Really enjoyed making my way through your catalog the last couple of weeks. Thanks for doing this. Well, thanks. Yeah. You bet. Just be no one 
Thanks so much to James. His was a name that was often thrown around when I lived in Texas in the mid to late 90s. I'm very glad I had this opportunity to really delve into his catalog because he's a really good songwriter, very distinctive style, though rather a hard nut to crack in terms of my format. I had almost called this James McMurtry has no comment, but on doing the edit, I think it came out okay. 
The next episode is going to be with Paula Cole, Grammy winner. And she is much more verbose. So please come back for that. Again, you can learn all about this podcast. Get all the episodes at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. There are links on there to my Twitter, my Facebook, my Instagram. Please follow me. Please spread the word about these episodes. And spread the word about McMurtry's music because it's awesome. And you can learn more at jamesmcmurtry.com. And dare I suggest kicking a few bucks, buy one of his albums or two or three or five, because they are very good. And if you have any left over, then you should support this podcast. You could do that either at patreon.com slash nakedly examined music, or if you are currently listening to the Nakedly Examined Music podcast on your Apple Podcasts app, there should just be a subscribe button right there. And clicking that will get you access to the ad-free feeds for three of my podcasts. Because if you like this, then you will probably like the music-related discussions and arts-related discussions on my Pretty Much Pop A Culture podcast. And if you are a zany person with, with unique tastes, then you will enjoy my Philosophy versus Improv podcast, which is getting better and better and better guests. And you can still get in on it on the ground floor now. Hope you're doing well. Hope your January, your 2022 has started off as impressively as you hoped. I hope your expectations were fairly realistic, because this is the year we got, and we're going with it. Until next time, keep on musicking. This is Mark Meyer signing off.